Hi, and welcome to the Productize Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productize Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Hey guys, welcome to the Productize podcast produced by Productize, a series of interviews with product innovators, successful makers, and entrepreneurs. We hope those who listen to the ideas on this show are inspired to action. And for show notes and additional resources related to today's podcast, visit productize.medium.com. So today we have a very special episode. This is the sixth episode of season eight of the Productize podcast. It's a you know, this is a great honor to have uh, Lloyd with us. Hi, Lloyd. Hey, nice to be here. Nice meeting you. So let me just do a quick intro here to Lloyd Humphreys. Um, so he grew up in North Wales, but relocated to Copenhagen to get closer to an interesting tech scene. Lloyd is principal product manager for data and analytics at TradeShift, which is headquartered out of San Francisco originally. Um, He was a freelance designer turned product owner, and these days he prefers to work with data because Lloyd believes it's possible to make a bigger impact with that skill set. He approaches his role with lots of care and a trade shift that's, uh, that's what's actually doing, but he also has a very analytical mindset and he's using systems thinking to identify the small changes that you can leverage to have this large effect on people, processes, and technology. TradeShift is the leader in invoicing and accounts payable automation, which uses an AI technology-based um, uh, technology, which is called actually ADA. Um, when he's not at work, he can most likely be found at a metal concert or nerding out about submarines, which happens to be one of my favorite topics as well. So let me just tell you a little bit about TradeShift as well. Um, so TradeShift is a, a market leader in invoicing and accounts payable automation and an innovator in the B2B marketplace. Um, they provide access to supplier financing and by using this cloud-based platform, they help buyers and suppliers digitize invoice processing, automate accounts, payable workflows, and you know, let them scale quickly. TradeShift's vision is to connect every company in the world, creating economic opportunity for all. And that's that's a great, great vision, um, which lets me to the first question, which is just welcoming you today, Lloyd, and asking you, are, are you actually working out of Copenhagen, which is also, if I'm not mistaken, the birthplace of TradeShift? Yeah, absolutely. I'm working out of the uh, TradeShift office here uh, every day in Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. We were started here by three days. Absolutely. And your background is as a designer. Um, so that's not so common still. Um, you know, designers becoming product managers, product owners, eventually product managers still have lots of, you know, lots of space there to grow. So how do you apply the, the disciplines you learn as a designer in your current role as a product manager? I'm sort of surprised that more designers don't want to ro- move over into a product manager role, to be honest. I feel mm-hmm. like I get way more ability to impact 
like a good user experience from from this position than I mm -hmm. ever did as a as an individual contributor on the design side of things. Mm -hmm. um, I think in terms of applying the disciplines learned, like there's probably something to be taken from the freelance designer side of things. There's a lot of expectation management that you get good at real quick as a freelancer, or you about to sync. You know, you want to deliver things on time, ideally to budget, um, and then you know learning to tie deliverables to a certain cost like i think that's also a key thing that i learned as a freelancer that it can be very easy to get into conversations with end users or with customers that you're trying to convince to buy something that you know oh well we would just like this now please and it needs to be an extra thing and we're not going to pay for it so you know being able to tie value generation to like the exchange of of uh, value between the two companies and between us is kind of something interesting i got out of the freelance side of things and you know, doing that well, I guess, is <laughs> what I got out of the freelance side of things. Um, and then I think being able to shift gears between different fidelities and being able to come to the level of the people that you're trying to talk to in terms of their technical understanding and in terms of uh, what, what you're trying to get across and what you're trying to convince them to do. So mm -hmm. if I'm trying to convince somebody that we should explore something, I can whip together a design document or a, a wireframe if I'm trying to sell something or get some buy-in for something that we haven't built yet, you know, I can go all the way up to a high fidelity mock-up that looks like the real thing. And I think, you know, being able to switch in between those. Mm -hmm. you're, you're still is, getting your hands dirty and, you know, dirty yeah. in the sense you're developing the mock-ups and giving them to, to the actual designers in the team to, to see what's your vision for the product. Occasionally. Yeah. I think there are times where the distance between like my brain and a design is you know, it's way faster. I can put something together that gets my point across right. a lot more quickly than if I were to explain it or to try and write a, a big spec doc or something like that. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I do occasionally dip, still dip back into that and, and do that as a way to convince people that we should, you know, go a certain direction or try and put something in front of a customer and get their feedback, things like that, for sure. Mm -hmm. And a big part of what you're doing right now involves AI. So where did your interest in AI come from? Is this something that you have always known you wanted or you have discovered more, more recently? To be honest, I, it's, a, it's a complete accident. We had mm -hmm. an AI team uh, at TradeShift that were developing like machine learning models. Um, and I've always liked working with data. I think it's very interesting. And you know, some of the smartest people uh, that I know are working in this area. <laughs> it's like an opportunity to go and be the dumbest guy in the room. Um, so... On our machine learning team back when I joined, uh, I think um, our efforts were like a bit academic. Like we had some stuff in production, but it was very sort of researchy. Um, and I think what I was able to bring to that was like a focus on what we could do that make a change to the product and bring some of these things to market. Um, so, I mean, I feel like I've, I've learned so much. I saw so much opportunity there and so much, you know, uh, things that we would be capable of delivering uh, delivering value on top of, um, and I, I yeah, just went for it. Uh, so <laughs> complete accident that I ended up uh, in there, but still doing it, still enjoying it, and mm -hmm. still tons of opportunities. And that that was already a trade shift. Yeah. So how did you end up joining the company? Um, I ended up moving to Copenhagen um, to work for Citrix originally. Mm, I right. knew some knew some friends uh, on Twitter that were mm -hmm. living here and working for Citrix. Um, so that's right. how I ended up. So in Copenhagen. Citrix had like a development hub in Copenhagen? They did, yeah. Okay. Um, but they ended up uh, closing the offices here. 
Mm. Um, so I took a, a couple of months figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, and I had also been talking uh, to uh, Christian, who's our CEO on Twitter for a little while. Um, and, you know, so I'd always kind of known that TradeShift was a thing and it was in Copenhagen. Um, mm. And, you know, I ended up going for an interview there and, and thinking that it was, it was going to be an interesting, interesting place to join, mm. especially coming from a freelance background. I, I, I can really identify with a lot of the problems, of, you know, cash flow, getting paid on time, dealing with invoices, actually getting people to pay them. It's really frustrating. Um, so being able to solve that on, on the scale that we're solving it, it's really interesting for sure. Very attractive to me at least. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So, yeah. So what do you guys, are you working with small business as well? And that's a big part of your target uh, demographic or, you know, segmentation. Um, absolutely yeah um right that's that's super powerful i mean has any business owner will tell you that's that's really the part of the business that most people kind of don't want to go through right they people are not creating companies to go after invoices and you know go after clients that are not paying the invoice and so on and so forth but yeah the, the question I, I, i'm so you went to Copenhagen seven years ago right what yeah. draw you to was it the startup scene? Uh, what what was the, you know, what draw you to Copenhagen first? It's place? kind of a kind of a funny story because I was looking to leave uh, North Wales to just go and live in a city somewhere in Europe, and I really had it in my head that I was going to move somewhere warm and cheap, and then I got talking to my friends on Twitter and I ended up somewhere very expensive and kind of always cold. So these days, I mean, I stick around because I think it's a beautiful city that is a really vibrant startup scene, um, tons of meetups. You can go out and meet anybody who knows about anything. Um, and it's just a very like sort of livable attitude towards building businesses and building software. I don't think anybody's completely breaking their back to do it. It's not this sort of crazy hustle uh, attitude towards it. It's a very nice work-life balance, you know, that people put their, put their lives first in terms of, of building businesses and building software and working together. It's a really, really nice environment to work in. Mm -hmm. um is that is that the part that you enjoy the most in your current work setup is it the life balance um i think the thing i enjoy the most about my job is the diversity of what i get to do i feel um on the on the data side of things at least i get to impact um or i get to help people impact at least how they run the business understanding the products so that we can develop new things, um, identifying problem areas, opportunities, um, all the way through to helping customers understand how they are using the product. What are they spending their money on? You know, passing their audits, things that people, you know, do not enjoy doing, but we try and make it easier. Um, you know, I feel like I'm feel like I'm learning all the time. It's like sort of infinite depth to how complicated mm -hmm. something like ChatGPT can be. You work with closely with so many large enterprises that have very unique ways of working um you know one of the one of the reasons that we're both nerds about uh, submarines is they're just very complex pieces of machinery there's a, a lot to be learned there i just kind of like understanding how things work and understanding how people work together and getting getting into these organizations and understanding how some of these fundamental processes like how do you pay for stuff like understanding yeah. things like that is very interesting to me yeah. um I don't know. I like to build things. And I think there are kind of limitless opportunities at TradeShift to contribute to any bit of the build process that I'm interested in. If I want to 
do a bit of design, I can do a bit of design. If I want to write a bit of code, I can write a bit so of it's, code. It's, it's the, the, the freedom. Yeah, of... absolutely. And what, what's your current biggest challenge? What are you really challenged about? Question. Yeah. Um, I would say like a, a data governance problem. Mm, I think, okay. I mean, as any data product person is going to tell you that this is a, a problem. Um, I wouldn't say it's critical. So or... For people that are not so familiar with the concept, data governance is what exactly? Um, so our team aggregates a lot of data from across the organization. And mm. we're not in control of generating it. We're not in control of validating it. Um, but we are processing it and spinning it out into different areas of our systems. So we send it over into a machine learning algorithm or we'll send it back to a customer, things like that. Um, and understanding what's happening at the source and how that is being passed through all of the different steps of a data pipeline so that mm. we can make sure that we're compliant, make sure that we're not making any mistakes um, and make sure that we understand what's going on. Like you could imagine that uh, 11 years of trade shift, uh, there's a, a lot of this stuff going on and making sure that everybody understands all of these processes, all of these transformations, where data comes from and how we came to a certain outcome. I mean, documentation is sort of where people traditionally lean for something like that. But then you make a change, the documentation doesn't get updated. <laughs> then it becomes then it becomes a liability to have documentation around. So you really want to be building tooling, things that are self-documenting, infrastructure as code. You know, you want it to be as 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 thin a layer as possible. Um, so dealing with that is probably our, our biggest challenge, but it's also it's a really difficult one to get get right. Um, and I think that's probably at the end of the day something that becomes a, a competitive advantage for us. Like we we make a product available to our customers, which is basically their data cleaned up and they can have it back. So, I mean, things like that, we, we invest in it to make our lives easy and understand what's going on in our own systems and build reporting on top of it, build data products for customers. But at the end of the day, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of value just in the cleanup and the documentation and making it easy to work with that mm. we can provide back to customers too. And I think that's quite often overlooked. Yeah, well, one of the questions we have here from the audience is um, with your recent experience with AI, how do you think that this will fundamentally change the future of product management in, in features in general? Hmm. You know, is it, is it, does it have a direct impact in your practice already? I don't think it has a direct impact in my practice right now. I think there are some really cool startups um, the, the engineering manager I used to work with is currently working at a startup called Forecast. Forecast. Uh, they're, they're basically trying to do product management or maybe project management with a, a real focus on implementing a machine learning model or an AI behind mm. making sure that products are delivered on time. And I think that's a really interesting uh, thing that they're going for there. Um, I would love to try something like that in, my, in delivering some of the products that I deliver. I think they're maybe more focused towards projects like delivering a building or something like that. Um, but I could definitely see things like that uh, becoming useful. Um, I would also yeah. say proactively, you know, getting into analytics, audit trail data, process mining kind of things. If, if something could tell me 20% more of your users are doing this year over year, and it's not really something that you ever hooked up uh, telemetry to, we just kind of figured it out based on you know, click streams or usage patterns or something like that, it can often be 
you know, the answer can be right in front of you and it can be kind of difficult to, to identify it. And something that can identify those patterns without me having to think that a pattern might exist. I think there's a lot of opportunity and things like that. Absolutely. It's, it's quite interesting you spoke about project management in this context because actually submarines, right? They, they led to the development of the Gantt charts. And, you know, Gantt charts being used by project managers all over the world to plan their whatever they're doing. And the, actually, the first nuclear submarine was what was what led the uh, U.S. Navy to develop Gantt charts. And and yes, I was I was, you know, Patrick Collision from Stripe. Yeah. So he was he has this this blog site where I was or kind of blog or, or site as his own personal site. I think it's uh, patrickcollision.com uh, slash fast where yeah. he's going through lots of uh, details of projects that used to be developed faster in the past and they're being developed right now. So before this conversation, we were actually speaking about the USS Virginia, which is mm -hmm. the, still the current US, um, you know, I think the state of the art in terms of uh, submarines for the US Navy right now. And, and it took, I don't know, more than a decade to develop the submarine. Um, but the first nuclear submarine was built in less than six months, you know, crazy stuff, right? Um, and Absolutely. if you think about, um, yeah, if you think about it, it's really mind blowing. Um, so necessity being the mother of invention, I guess. Absolutely. Just get it done. Yeah, you know, I think maybe necessity is definitely, definitely plays like 90% I guess, yeah, necessity is probably one of the most important things. I, I think there's also, I don't know, um, it's, it's actually a great question. I think they, they actually wrote an entire uh, article about it with, uh, with an economics professor. Um, and they, you know, they don't have like very good conclusions to what is leading projects to not be executed as efficiently as you know, in the 50s or 60s, there's lots of theories about, um, yes, necessity, but also red tape and so on. Mm -hmm. So coming back to product management um, and running away from project, which is what all product managers uh, do, um, are, are you self-taught? Have you studied or taken any courses on, on product management, I mean, or do you have any kind of, um, you know, uh, in-house, say, in, in trade shift that you know, led you to, to become the product person you are today? Uh, I've actually, I've never had any formal education in design or in product management. So just sort of learned on the internet, YouTube tutorials, just trying stuff out. Um, definitely one of those people that likes to just try things rather than read a book about them or something. Um, but yeah, quite often I am, uh, I'm reading. Um, I think who made me the product manager I am today? I would have to say like um, there are a number of people at TradeShift who have been like very uh, influential on that. Um, uh, my first manager uh, was a guy called Pete. And I mean, he was really helpful in terms of helping me see, see the big picture, calm down, not freak out about every urgent thing that comes in being a super urgent thing, you know, taking the, really taking the, the wind out of the sails of some of those things. Really appreciate that. Um, and then a guy, uh, a guy called Klaus, he always banging on about integrity, you know, delivering what you say you're going to do, sticking to your deadlines, trying to make sure that people understand what's going on. 
I think integrity is like a really interesting word when you talk about product management. Um, so, you know, th those two guys uh, that I've worked closely with have, have definitely had an influence on me. They're, they're, um, both, they're both Danish? Uh, Pete is British and uh, Klaus is Danish, yeah. Mm -hmm. well, and, what about, yeah, go on, go on. And then, you know, uh, Twitter, reading, um, I think John Cutler is a sort of, I'm sure that I'm not the first person to say that, um, huge, huge influence on me, read everything he puts out there, um, re really interesting guy. Um, and then some of the books, I don't think I really read a lot of books on product management specifically, but maybe things like uh, positioning, how to sell things, how to pitch things, um, maybe like a, more of a business, business positioning kind of, kind of books. I think all of the things around product management, managing people, how to get, how to get people to uh, rally behind a goal, things like that. So you know, I think, I, I don't actually think I've done a whole lot of reading around product management. I'm a, I'm a wing it, try it out, iterate in my own learning kind of, kind of guy. Uh, and whenever I feel a gap, you know, try and find a book or an article, or I'm sure there's something in John Cutler's back catalog that I'd find interesting. So trying to approach right. it like that. So we're, we're heading towards our second, the second part of this conversation. So let me just do a quick pause here to remind people that if you want to hear some interesting topics next year, um, we are preparing for you an excellent list of courses and workshops and this is something that we really recommend you to be part of. So please fill in the form that we're going to uh, share on the chat on, on YouTube to help us choose the most interesting topics for 2022 in the product area. This, this same link is also going to be shared on the podcast description. And this will be super important because it's really you, the product manager, hearing this that is going to tell us what you want to hear what 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 are you struggling with and what are the topics that and the people that you want to to hear in 2022 so going back to our conversation um and and also to your career a little bit more you were talking about um working in denmark and um some of this core concepts of integrity and being you know talking the walk and walking the talk and, and delivering according to your own promises. What do you say, you know, it's the biggest difference in terms of the work ethics of, of working in Denmark that you have seen from, you know, your experience this last seven years of working in the country? I think the Danish working culture is extremely straight. People will not mince their words. They'll just be really upfront with you. It's like, uh, if you've read the book Radical Kanda, it's like living in a country where everybody read that book. <laughs> so uh, I, I really appreciate that. I think people are uh, people are really on the money a lot of the time, and they're not afraid of giving their feedback. Um, but people are also very very willing to receive feedback. I don't think anybody really sees it as uh, ever takes it as an offense. I mean, people take these things very constructively. Um, I may have been lucky in the in the companies that I've worked in here, but uh, that seems to be my my perception at least. And I also think as a, as a society, I see people, people who care about their neighbors, if that, if that makes sense. I think, I, I don't think that I could have a happy life if I was surrounded by people who are unhappy. And mm -hmm. I think that's a, a sort of common, maybe, maybe a common uh, thinking process here. So I think, you know, uh, so taking care of each other, taking care of each other. Yeah, they even have like this specific word for 
you know, uh, happiness in the community, which um, became, you know, became a marketing um, segue for companies like um, Carlsberg and others. Um, what's that word? Uh, uh, maybe Hugo. Hugo, right? Yeah. Um, is 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 that the meaning of Hugo? Is like caring for others? It's like a. It's if you're having a, a cozy time, you know, surrounded by friends. So cozy time surrounded by friends. Okay, yeah. <laughs> let's take it from there. <laughs> and that is also part of the office culture, I guess. Absolutely. People like to hang out. Um, uh, you'll never be, you'll never struggle to find somebody who wants to have a beer with you after work. That's for sure. Okay. That's it's really that, nice. That's making Copenhagen very attractive destination for lots of people right now, especially <laughs> this crazy uh, remote only or COVID times where we're spending so much time with ourselves at home. So how would you um, describe the, the, the trade shifts AI um, core offering and how much is it leveraging the, the products right now? I think uh, you know, a bit tongue in cheek, but probably like incomplete. I feel like mm -hmm. we've seized so many opportunities and tried so many things and it, it only just makes me think bigger and bigger and bigger and more more of what we could do. So I, I look at what we've got and I just see gaps and I just see so much more that we could do. Um, yeah, whoever whoever is inside the ship, right, is always seeing yeah. the you know the whole all the all the troubles. But the, the, there is this core technology which is that Yada technology, right? Which is part of the you know the marketing proposition, value proposition of the product. So what does it actually give to the user? Um, mm. and how do you see the, the vision for this kind of you know, core AI technology for the, the roadmap into the next five years. And, you know, you don't have to publish the roadmap <laughs> of, of trade shift here, but just, just to understand the, the importance of AI and how this is actually fundamentally changing the product. And since we had a, a couple of questions in, in that regards as, as well, I think that would be sure. interesting. I think we're doing, we, we've positioned ADA as this sort of uh, platform level artificial intelligence offering that we have on, on, on our platform. So um, we always talk about TradeShift as a, as a platform for supply chains. You can be a seller, you can be a buyer. You could also come to TradeShift and you could be a bank or a financer, an insurance company, a marketplace, you know, all, all kinds of things, an independent software vendor. Um, so we, we've tried to build this as something that um, is, is, a, is a platform that we're building on top of, but a platform that anyone could build on top of. So um, when you think about the different levels um, where we could deploy machine learning models at TradeShift, we could deploy them network-wide to every company on the network. And all of the activity on the network is feeding in into that. Um, so this would be something like um, if I send you a purchase order and you send me back an invoice, very often due to the way that the systems are integrated with each other, you might not be doing that directly on TradeShift, but it eventually mm -hmm. hits TradeShift. Right. And the references between the lines on those documents might be broken. And all of the effort that we put in upfront to make sure that the purchase order is correct uh, sort of goes out of the window. And now we have a manual invoice to process. Mm -hmm. So something that we've been working on on the network level is sort of relinking those together after the fact using a machine learning model that we call line linker. Um, so that's something that we deploy everywhere. Um, then we have, we'll take a step closer. So a smaller scope. We'll have company level models that we try and deploy. Um, these are things like uh, coding categorization. So coding is basically if you've ever filled out an expense report 
you have to put in a cost center or a GL code, project code, things like that. Some of these companies have insane setups for these, you know, 10, 15 different codes for the different kinds of products that they're trying to buy. Um, and we try and automate that with a machine learning model. Now we can't deploy that to everyone because it's unique per company, right. but yeah. we can deploy active learning machine learning models where as soon as that invoice gets approved, that's a new tra piece of training data for the model. Right. Does that work on top of, let's say, legacy SAP systems, or does that take SAP out of the equation altogether? So quite often we will sit in between SAP and a, and a customer's uh, supply base uh, or supply chain. So you could think of TradeShift as an aggregator that makes it easy for uh, sellers and vendors to send their documents to us because maybe we're a bit easier to work with. Um, and we package all of those and send them through in the end uh, back to SAP if that is the, the system that the customer is using. So um, you're, not, you're not killing SAP. That's a shame. <laughs> uh, not today. That's for sure. All right. Well, it should. Um, I, 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 I would totally buy that vision. You know, we, we are the <laughs> SAP killers. And the world does need that, <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. So but, um, what's so? Sorry, I think I still interrupted you on your on your good. flow there. Yeah, all good. So what's what's important here in your product development process? You have this design side, technical side, and are you still struggling with your you know ex designer uh, on that? Are you? No, absolutely not. Um, happy. I think it helps if anything. Um, mm. I think if we take the coding, uh, coding functionality that we developed, for example, um, we spent we spent some time developing that as an MVP, and we had a model that would sit in production, and it would suggest codes for things, and we took it to a whole bunch of customers. And what what we had in our mind was like, you turn this on, forget about it. It just starts coding things. It's going to be awesome. And we couldn't convince anybody to turn it on. And I think at the, you know, coming back to, you know, a bit of soul searching there, I think like people buy a system like TradeShift because they want control over this process. And introducing machine learning into that process sort of introduces a, a bit of a chaos element. At least if a human gets something wrong, then, you know, they have somebody to be mad at. They have somebody that they can go and teach. Um, but with a machine learning uh, methodology, it becomes a little, a little more difficult for them to do that. And they weren't willing to give up they, they, you know, they feel like they're giving up control. And on the design side of things, uh, what we ended up doing there is we built a, um, a dashboard that would basically show you, okay, here, is the, uh, here are the probabilities that we see. And based on the last 90 days of data that you have processed, here's what we think the next 90 days is gonna look like. Um, and if you can give us um, cost ideals for these things, so you know how much it costs you to manually process an invoice like this, you know how much it's going to cost you to um, uh, have to fix one, you know, the rework involved in something like that. Um, then uh, we can show you where is the, where is the perfect setting for you to say, this is the, this is the trade-off that I'm willing to make. I'm willing to correct this many invoices because it means that I'm going to get a substantial benefit on the rest. Um, being able to package that up in a dashboard, in a design that sort of puts, puts this in front of the customer and helps them understand what's going on there um, is huge. And we love the idea of the simplicity of just a button that you push and it's enabled and isn't it magic? But you know, everybody has different, uh, different data that they're putting through a system like this. 
Um, and everybody has different outcomes and goals that they're going for with a system like this. And being able to sort of do that research, think about it, you know, from a from a design perspective, how do you want to communicate this back to the customer? So, um, yeah, maybe just taking it um, on a, on a, a different direction, uh, or maybe not so much. But out of pure curiosity, I've heard that you are uh, icon collection enthusiast. Uh, <laughs> so how is that? How is that? that was, so? uh, that was a little while ago, for sure. Um, I think that was just about when I moved here. I was I was building this big icon set, and back then they didn't really exist in a way that was very consistent. I found myself designing these things over and over again for my own projects. So just to, I think that was the first first money I made online, just selling those selling those. Uh, back, I think back when I lived in Wales, actually. Um, but these days, these days, not not so much. I think. Uh, I think they're still available on Icon Finder, but other than that, I don't really, don't really sell them anymore. But mm -hmm. very, it was a super interesting, uh, super interesting experience. And when you do something like that over and over and over again, you really start to notice the little things that really wind you up when you, <laughs> when you see these icons all all over the web. It's almost a, it's almost a curse. So now you start to notice all the little things that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have done it like that. <laughs> yeah. And speaking about curses, any ideas of going to the NFT? uh bandwagon oh i don't know about that um i'm not one to you know discount any technology i think it's like an it, it's interesting i'm following it for sure but definitely feels a little um feels a little pyramid schemey at the moment seems like uh seems a little opportunistic you know i haven't mm -hmm. seen haven't seen that killer use case for it yet um but i'm open to it i think it's a it's a it's an interesting technology and i wouldn't want to wouldn't want to discount it yet could one day be a tool in the box right yeah. Um, so one of the most important and um, jobs of the, the product managers is really understanding the user's problem and fulfilling their expectations about the product. So how much of UX design is an empathic and psychological uh, mm -hmm. approach to the problem um, as you see it? Great question. Difficult question. Um, mm -hmm. I think during the research and the testing phases, it's definitely more like you almost feel like you're a, a, a therapist for the user. You're trying to, you know, ask not leading questions. You're trying to get them to talk as much as possible. Um, I think it's it's good to be able to acknowledge when you're when you're incapable of empathizing with this kind of user as well. Like um, some of the people that we work with are doing jobs that I didn't really know existed before I joined TradeShift, and are doing them, you know, so effectively or almost you know only only using the keyboard they're barely looking they're racing through it it's amazing and I, you know i'm I, it's very difficult for me to empathize with something like that and understand what they're doing there so you know being clear that sometimes you're not the end user and i've seen i've seen us fall into this trap a few times where we'll design something or at least i'll see a design for something that's a it's it's more consumer and i think that's great it's good to be accessible but that can also shut out a whole a whole group of people, and mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those are, end up being our target audience in a in an enterprise enterprise product environment at least. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, acknowledging that sometimes you are not the end user for something like this, you really need to listen. Um, and especially you know some of the AI stuff that we're trying to get out there, there's this there's this overlap between what I think the market wants and what the market thinks that it needs. 
and being able to position those things um, quite often to the person who is going to pay for the product, but not never going to touch it. So, you know, there's a, there's an interesting trade-off to be made there too. Like you want a, a demo and an interface and a product that you can click with in two minutes as somebody who does not use the product, uh, but something that at the end of the day is not clunky, doesn't get in the way and doesn't, uh, and makes the life easier of the person who is going to use it. So, you know, there's this very interesting trade-off that, that we're often making. And I think people are also sometimes a little afraid to, to talk about that. It, it almost sounds like you're, there's an impurity in your design process that you're mm-hmm. designing for someone who's never going to use the product. But, you know, sometimes that's, that's, that's necessary. And sometimes that's, that's an important part of getting, getting something over the line and getting it adopted. I'd rather do that and actually have people using it than do that and nobody ever wants to touch it because we never sell it. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about sales, um, Tradeshift uh, recently passed the $1 trillion uh, in transactions processed through the, the platform. So what, what is the, the North Star metric for Tradeshift? Is I it, definitely is it say it's the yeah, transaction volume on the platform. So we see it as, um, we see it as a, a side effect of a, the flywheel working, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we want to have more sellers on Tradeshift simpler onboarding like we want to get them there through simpler onboarding Um, and the more sellers there are the more compelling it is for an enterprise size buyer because the sellers are already on trade shift if you're an enterprise size customer using something like trade shift it is a huge pain to move from one system to another and you don't want to do it and we can make that pain a lot simpler because in many industries in many verticals you're joining trade shift as an enterprise buyer Mm -hmm. and your sellers are already selling stuff to other buyers that are already on the network. They're already there. So we see this as a, as a flywheel. There's more sellers, more buyers, makes it more compelling to join as a seller, makes it easier for us to convince buyers that this is the place that they need to be. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's, that, is a, that North Star metric is definitely a side effect of us knowing that that is working. Mm-hmm. And you know, related to metrics or not necessarily, what what do you think are the most common mistakes uh, PMs do? And this is also a question from the audience. Mm-hmm. And how uh, how about your personal experience about this? You know, common mistakes uh, that you see on the practice, either in your team or you know, just just as you see it. And how do you take uh, stock from those mistakes? Mm-hmm. I think a common mistake that I see is people have an answer in mind and it's pretty easy to make the data dance and get it to tell you whatever you want. And if you torture it enough, it'll tell you anything. Um, I think it is good. A good way to mitigate that is going into it is to talk to somebody, talk to somebody else uh, and describe the the kind of uh, data points that you're looking for and how they're going to support your decision-making process before you ever touch the data. Because I think as soon as you're into something like mixed panel or you're looking at a, a dashboard of your, your product metrics, right. it's really easy to just start and click yeah. and click and click. And, and all it becomes a, sudden, a self-fulfilling prophecy of exactly. data supporting your yeah. claims. It really helps to think about this upfront. Sure. Right, and, and still on, on the data, um, you, you believe that AI is one of those tools that we have on the toolbox, but not only the tool, but a critical one. So mm. could you explain what other 
key tools you think are crucial as well, other than AI and? I think it's it's difficult to touch on specific tools. I I, mm. I, oft, I often say this because um, when I when I meet with people, they will say to me that I'm like a an AI product manager. And I don't I I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm an AI product manager. It's just like I'm a product manager. I have problems that I'm interested in solving. Uh, and AI is a tool that we can use, we can choose to use to solve them. Um, and, you know, pretty often it, people will come with ideas and they think, uh, you know, machine learning is going to be amazing at solving this. And they are right that a computer is going to be amazing at solving this. But, you know, machine learning, if anything, introduces uncertainty, it introduces complexity. You might have to yeah. go back and fix things. It's never perfect. So, you know, it's a tool. You need to know when it's appropriate to reach for it. Um, and I, I really wouldn't write off any technologies. You know, we just talked about NFTs, for example. Yeah. I don't personally see it being like amazing right now, but I'm not writing it off. It's, it's a tool in the toolbox. It's probably not one that I would use very often. Uh -huh. um, we were discussing an idea for sending people physical mail the other day. You know, I don't think we're going to do that, but it's a tool in the toolbox. Yeah, it's well, it's all stuff like you should know how to use your tools. You should know their limitations. You should know how they're going to hurt you if you use them wrong. Uh, you know, pick the right tool for the job. And sometimes, sometimes machine learning is the right tool for the job. Right. And we can also meet you at metal concerts. So <laughs> definitely. Which, which kind of, which kind do you like? What kind of, uh, you know, what's the favorite band? Which course, which concert has have you been uh, to lately? Oh, I haven't been too much lately. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Pup. They have this amazing uh, festival here in Copenhagen called Copenhagen. Copenhagen. It's basically three days in the summer. It's all heavy metal. I can't wait for that. So it was delayed last year. We're going to go this year. Really excited for that. So uh, two of my favorite bands are going to be there. So Pup, Knocked Loose. I think if you're familiar with either of those, you're like, those are on completely different ends of the spectrum. But okay. uh, yeah, uh, really. Not so familiar. <laughs> but I, I was with, uh, you know, John Romero, the, the creator of, of Doom. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he, so he came here to, to Portugal to one of these um, events um, when we started having in-person events. And that was quite recently. <laughs> um, yeah, and last, last October. And he was telling how uh, metal music was so important in the development of the entire narrative of the game and the whole inspiration of the game was really um you know metal and because john romero you know being such a heavy metal uh fan ended up importing so many of those concepts into the the game uh cool. universe so you didn't know that yeah <laughs> yeah i didn't know that neither i mean you could kind of figure it out i guess but uh i just uh, realized that on his uh, keynote. So um, the the whole submarine thing is something that I'm also very fond. Of, so, but where, um, where, where, why do you have this interest? Um, is it because what? It's uh, I'm kind of interested in how everything works. I, I mean, I'm one of those kids that takes things apart for sure. Um, I think it's like it's extreme engineering. There are interesting trade-offs that they had to make in order to accomplish some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, you know, there's some aspect of like, they're, they're so advanced, they're so secret, and you know that there are these extreme feats of engineering that you know about. So what don't you yeah. know about? You know, there's sort of exactly. something, very, <laughs> something very mysterious about them. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Um, 
I really enjoyed uh, Smarter Every Day, it's that YouTube channel. He had mm-hmm. a six, six or seven part series where he goes on board the USS Toledo, I think. Smarter uh, Every Day. Yeah, I'm, I'm also following uh, him on, on YouTube. Very cool. The Very whole, cool. Uh, how the salinity in the water affects the buoyancy of the boat, uh, right. how the temperature of the water, things like this are just so, so interesting. How it all, how it all meshes together. It's never, uh, never one thing, right? It's like a, it's a balance. It's a dance. It's cool. a dance. It's like, just like product management, right? Uh, it's, <laughs> exactly. a, it's a big, big dance. And yes. that's also part of the fun. All right. So thank you, Lloyd. It was great having you with you, uh, having this conversation with you. Um, and yes, thank you for, for joining the, the Productize podcast. If you enjoyed your stay, give us your review on Apple Podcast and share this whole episode with friends and colleagues. Um, you also have the, the show notes and more episodes at productize.medium.com. And let me just tell you that next week we will have a special podcast. It's going to be the first in real life podcast in the three-year three-year-long history of Productize Podcast. So our guest is going to be uh, Tiago Cunha-Reich. He's the founder and CEO of MetaDynamics. Tiago's expertise relies on microelectronics and data science. And he also has a specialization in natural user interface. So if you're curious to know more about it, join us and join our community. We'll share all these links on the chat and the podcast description. This podcast was hosted by me, André Marquet, produced by Teresa Sigismundo, with research by Katarina Scherzik, and sound editing by Daniel Alves. Thank you so much, and have a nice day. Bye.